Nicole Mitchell, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with me today. Thank you. I thought I would start just by asking you how you came to the flute. Wow, <laughs> that goes back a long way. I was really enamored with the instrument the first time I heard it, and I really related to the sound as I, like a part of my identity. And it was, it was like hearing it from the inside of my body when I heard it. And so I really wanted to play it. But it actually took several years before I was able to convince my parents um, to support me in learning the flute. It took about four years. So during that time, I just listened to the radio and pretended to play <laughs> until I came up with, you know, a subversive way to convince them <laughs> that, you know, I really, you know, this was something that was really important to me. And I got, I um, did a contest, an art contest that I found, you know, sometimes like kids send things in the mail, like little contests. And I did one of those. And these people came to my house and talked to my parents about giving me art lessons and said I had this talent for visual art. And my mom was a self-taught painter, so she was really excited about this idea. So then they sat me down after they left and said, well, got some money. And we would invest for you if we, to, you know, get the materials and take lessons for art. But only if you're serious, would you want to do this? And I said, can you take that same money and buy me a flute and get me flute lessons? So then they couldn't really say no at that point. And from the get-go, were you interested in jazz music and improvising? Actually, no. I had listened to jazz growing up, but I really had never heard the flute playing jazz. And the environments that I was in really didn't encourage that. So it never actually even crossed my mind that I had that as an option until I went to college. And I was roller skating around at University of California, San Diego, playing Mozart concertos while I was like spinning around on my roller skates. And the jazz teacher, Jimmy Cheatham, who um, was in the Basie band, came up to me and said, I think you should take the jazz improv class. And I said, okay, you know, and haven't looked back since. <laughs> what about influences? Uh, who were your insp uh, sources of inspiration or who were the musicians you looked up to as a younger artist? Yeah, it's interesting because for me, it's not just about influences with the flute or influences with music. I think my greatest influence was my mother because she was being a self-taught artist. I saw her take a blank canvas and create things that never existed in, in the mixture with things that were familiar. And so this idea of bridging the familiar and unknown was something introduced to me through her work. And she also made science fiction stories and had like a kind of a real Afrofuturist approach to her work, even though people didn't use those words back then. And she was part of an artist collective, um, the Black Folk Art Gallery of Syracuse, New York. And so I was, you know, surrounded and immersed in this kind of environment, you know, with people that were excited about doing visionary things with creativity. And so I was that, you know, when I met people in the ACM, for example, it was that same kind of energy, you know, that I recognized and that I was enamored with. And so my influences really, you know, are kind of broad, you know, the influences of literature, say with Octavia Butler, science fiction writer, influences of flute 
the instrument itself, like Jean-Pierre Rompal and James Galway, for example, um, who are classical flutists, but the sound of the instrument, like, you know, really listening to their sound. And then the influences of creative music, first being James Newton, who is an amazing flutist, you know, who showed me like there's really no limits to what you can do on the instrument. Also Eric Dolphy listening to his recordings, you know, and being really inspired by his creativity and like his phrasing and like another just really original way of approaching improvisation. And it kind of fascinated me with this idea like maybe I could create my own improvisational language like listening to Roscoe Mitchell how he plays the saxophone and made his own language you know and as, as well as Anthony Braxton and you know George Lewis with his compositions and so there's just a lot of influences one of my favorite composers is Kaja Sariahu you know who's obviously a new music composer and so it can really branch out in a lot of directions because Bobby Humphrey's one of my favorite flute players, you know. So I, I really like a lot of different types of music. And, but I'm really also interested in how the arts connect, you know, and how all of the arts have this power to be transformative. Wow, that was a beautiful answer. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I understand you were born in New York State mm -hmm. and eventually you ended up in Chicago and That's you spent right. a number of years um, as a musician there. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what you have to say about the Chicago music scene. Uh, obviously there's so many legendary musicians coming out of Chicago. Yeah. What was it like for you, I mean when you first moved there, was it easy for you to find people to play with and to sort of be accepted? Yeah. Well actually Chicago was the first time in my life coming to Chicago in 1990 in my early 20s was the first time I actually didn't feel alone I think all my life up to that point I was just this weirdo that couldn't really find friends that really had similar vision of what they wanted to do and then I come to Chicago and there's like a whole bunch of people that you know are really reaching for something else and trying to go beyond the boundaries and and being experimental and like you know this rich you know um this this like rich community and african-american contemporary arts as well as just a, the arts community in general being super supportive and like there being platforms to develop you know music and visual art and and I had friends a lot of friends when I first came to Chicago weren't even musicians they were mostly visual artists and writers and a lot of them were going to the Art Institute of Chicago and it took some years before I started meeting musicians playing on the street is how I met a lot of musicians in the AACM and um, but Chicago like was just magical at that time you know and I'm really thankful to like have the opportunity to come up through that experience with a lot of people my age, you know, um, like I had several women that we all had babies at the same time and we were all like either writers or poets or visual artists and I was really the only musician in our kind of group. But then, you know, as I got older, I started connecting with other musicians that were mentors for me. Um, and that's when I started playing with this group, you know, I co-founded called Samana, which is an all-women ensemble with 
multi-instrumentalist Maya or Sonia Hubert and uh, Shanta Nurula. And so we started this group and then that group went on for seven years. But I don't know if it, that really could have happened anywhere else, you know, going to Von Freeman's apartment lounge you know, and listening to him play the saxophone and then meeting Fred Anderson and learning about the Velvet and starting to develop my music at the Velvet Lounge. I don't know if there was anywhere else that could really have happened, you know, and I did spend a number of years working for Third World Press, which is the oldest, longest-running African-American book publishing company in the country right there in Chicago because Chicago has this rich legacy as a part of the the black arts movement and so some of these institutions that were started in the 60s are still going strong and I was able to contribute my energy and talent into you know continuing these institutions and you know like the ACM and Third World Press and yeah it's just been I'm just thankful you know because I think community is really how you can develop as a person as a part of something and I know like there's a lot of artists that don't ever find that. Given your deep connection to the city of Chicago, now that you're living on the West Coast, how does it feel? You know, Chicago's still home. And even though I've been living in California for seven years, also I did move to California halfway through my childhood and I went to high school in, in Southern California. But at that time, historically, it was just in the beginning of what we call integration, you know, where you had apartheid, you had segregation in, in the U.S., and then you had these legal changes that, you know, as a result of the civil rights movement and the black power movement, and these changes made for integrated schools and made, um, kind of opened up the possibilities of people of color, black people and other people of color to live in places they weren't allowed to live before or go to schools they weren't allowed to go to. And so my parents took advantage of that and they moved us into a white neighborhood in Anaheim, California, but the neighbors didn't want us there. So it was very difficult. You know, it was very hostile and um, the people in that neighborhood did not want us to be there. And so for me going to Chicago in, the su in my summertime to visit my grandparents, because my mother was from Chicago and and spending my Christmases there really helped me to see okay well the whole world isn't like this like I can be somewhere else and people don't hate me just for the way I look <laughs> you know so it was important it's always had an important role and um, that I think those memories make it hard for me to embrace California even though I live there but now I live in Long Beach and Long Beach is a great community it's very diverse and um, it's like very progressive and um, it's a lot of fun to be a part of a city that's really trying to do something new and trying to be innovative and to amplify coexistence, you know. So. And so you are teaching, you're a professor of music out uh, on the West Coast. I'm just wondering about how you see university music education today. I've heard some musicians be a little bit critical mm -hmm. of the way that music and creative music and, and jazz is taught mm -hmm. in a university setting. So how do you feel about that? Do you feel like as a professor, you have certain constraints placed upon you of what you should or what you can do? Well, it's interesting. I think a lot of times faculty and in, 
will put those constraints on themselves. I think that most universities do have what you call academic freedom, which means that as a professor, for the most part, you have the freedom to teach the curriculum you want to teach. But, but it's the people that are there, that are senior faculty, that are hiring the new faculty. A lot of times they may determine what that culture is. And if they have a certain kind of, like angle or approach that they want to continue and see perpetuated even after they leave, then they will only choose new faculty that has that same mindset. And I think that's where it becomes a problem. But luckily where I am at University of California, Irvine, I'm a part of a program that's very open-minded. It's called, it's called Integrated Composition, Improvisation, and Technology. So their, their approach to jazz is very open-ended because we embrace not only jazz as an improvised music, but other sources of improvised music. Because all over the world, people are improvising, and there's lots of different approaches to improvisation. So our program is not just limited to jazz, so I don't have to deal with that aspect that maybe some other um, systems have to deal with. Um, That said, I think it's important, like, for me, at, like part of my pedagogical approach, I would say, is taking on the ACM approach, which is I'm trying to encourage the artists. I look at students as artists. They, they're coming in this program as artists. They want to develop their work, you know, in the program. So for them, I want to help them to deepen their practice of what their vision is of what they're trying to do. I'm not trying to turn them into somebody else. I want them to become more themselves. And I think when you take that approach, then that's the best that you can have, you know, because nobody can do you better than you, right? So that's the real value. If you as an artist can be as fluid and and as in-depth in your expression of who you are. So. Wow. I think your students are so lucky to have you as a professor. And of course, your musical output is amazing and astonishing. So let's talk a bit about your music. I was going to ask you about the narrative and how that fits into your music. And hearing you speak a bit about your influences on your childhood, I kind of see that you had these different sources of creativity. Mm -hmm. So how do you feel about narrative in your work? Yeah, actually, I remember when my mom gave me my first journal, (laughs) you know, and she was always encouraging me. Actually, whenever I got in trouble, I had to write essays. That was my punishment. So So I've always been very close to writing and, you know, very much into reading. And actually, most songs that I've composed, there's always a backstory, (laughs) even if I don't end up sharing it with the audience or, you know, making a big deal out of it. But... I guess my later work, my more current work, is definitely has a clear relationship with narrative. But actually, every, all of my work has a relationship with narrative. And so I think it's just kind of how I'm put together in my process um, for making music is narrative is really the source of where the music's coming from. So this, And maybe it, part of it is also when I started improvising, I was playing on the street. And when I would see people walk by, I would create, you know, improvisations to animate what their story was as they walked by. So it was kind of my direct link to developing my improvisation was related to storytelling. 
Interesting. Uh, you did mention the influence also of, of Octavia Butler. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, work that your mother was reading. Yeah. So that was always around. When did you read her work? I know you've uh, done a few albums right. inspired directly from the Xenogenesis yes. uh, books. Uh -huh. So actually as a teenager, maybe 14, 15 years old, I pulled those books off the shelf and they're pretty horrifying. And actually, like Parable of the Sower, if you read that right now, it's about this moment. I mean, it was written in the 80s, but it's really pretty scary. She was really prophesizing what was going to happen to America. And when I say America, like the United States. But if you read in those books, there's literally quotes of the governor in the story saying, let's make America great again. And she wrote this in the 1980s. That's how close her narrative is to what's going on now. So her work, I think, is just tremendously relevant. And what's really powerful about there's a few things. I realized that science fiction is an amazing gateway for audiences to have a new way to relate and connect to creative music, whereas they feel, you know, where some people might feel that it's abstract, it's like, I don't understand it, it's too complicated, it's weird, or it's scary, you know. Through literature, there's a connection, like when you go to see a movie, for example, you want to be scared, or you want to go on this journey into the unknown, and so it's, it's a great way you know, to connect, you know, for people to have a way to relate to the music. But also the science fiction in itself is amazing. The way Octavia Butler utilized it to be able to tell us about some of our social issues, but through this fantasy that she's creating, helping us to reflect on how we're actually dealing with some things now that need to be transformed and giving us things to think about you know and that's really what's powerful about art you know so so I really love the connection between science fiction and music it seems like more and more like when I first started it people were like hmm skeptical but like now I mean with the Black Panther movie and like all these things happening Afrofuturism is becoming something that the mainstream is becoming more aware of and I think there's a curiosity, a new curiosity right now that maybe wasn't there when I first started doing this work. And especially when my mother was doing this work in the 70s, like people weren't, <laughs> they weren't really interested at that point. But she has paintings of three suns setting, you know, or, you know, a black woman floating in space with her baby, like next to Neptune and things like this, you know. So now that's really kind of, become part of what people are aware of now which is exciting yeah as an aside i would love to see those paintings <laughs> speaking of social issues uh, i guess jazz has always been political or it seems very yeah. it can be very radical uh, so and certainly you're you seem very engaged i'll mention that uh, last year uh, the musician joel leandre wrote an open letter uh, decrying the lack of gender diversity and mainstream choices at Les Victoires du Jazz, a French annual awards ceremony. Yes. 
And just this past May, at the Vision Festival in New York City, you were performing in a group called Women with an Axe to Grind, <laughs> which is a wonderful yeah. group name, I have to say, along with Joelle Leandre, Melanie Dyer, and Patricia Nicholson. Uh, so it seems like that grouping was pretty had a pretty direct message. Mm -hmm. Would would you th yeah. say that's? I actually want to add something. That same day of that performance at the Vision Festival, this collective that I'm a part of called We Have Voice, um, we presented a panel discussion on a code of conduct that we've worked really hard to develop. And this code of conduct is just like one piece of paper with a lot of explanation about what the you know, clarifying for people what the boundaries are in terms of how can we have a better and more healthy interaction as people. So it's not just dealing with, you know, some people look at, oh, it's sexism, da, da, da. But like, no, it's like there's a lot of issues that have to do with power relationships. And that can be in a lot of different situations. You know, it could be based on race. It could be based on class. It could be based on gender, you know, or a mixture of those things. And if you look at the intersectionality. So this group is a very diverse group of people, musicians, that have come together to create this code of conduct. And we have several institutions now, like Chamber Music America, several jazz festivals, some educational institutions that are signing on to this code so that it really just opens up the conversation to start start talking about how musicians, and especially in jazz, are in these, their workplace might be in a club or might be on a tour bus or might be in a very non-conventional place. And how do we still establish a sense of, you know, mutual respect and understanding and kind of elevate that. So to kind of create a higher standard for people to reach for so that we can treat each other better and because you know we have this repetition of reinventing the wheel with young people coming into this music and having certain kinds of hardships that really we can avoid if we just have more communication and less gray areas because you know for the most part I think people don't necessarily intend to do wrong towards others but they may, like if they have the clarity of what those lines are, then they're like, oh, I don't want to cross that line. And then, of course, you're going to always have some people that purposely cross the line. But I think it's overall going to hope, I'm just hoping that it'll make some change. So that's something that I've worked on with the collective. And it's really inspiring to work with these musicians and learn you know, learn even more about just some of, like, how to articulate some of these topics and, and to navigate um, the challenges that come with addressing them, you know, because you, you're stirring the pot. People are going to get upset and, you know, but it's proactive versus reactive, you know, so that's one of the things that I've been working on. Yeah, a great initiative. The last thing I'll ask you is, uh, given that you've been making music for a number of years now, you have a number of different groups you're working with. You, um, you're composing for different ensembles. You have the Black Earth Ensemble, which has been yeah. going since '98, I believe. Yeah, it's our 20th anniversary. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> At this point, it seems like you're sort of increasing your circle of collaborators. You have some yeah. international, intercultural collaborations. Do you see that happening kind of infinitely, where you're just kind of yeah. working more and more yeah. with <laughs> people in, in different places? Yeah. Or 
could it be that at a certain point you'll feel like you you're comfortable with expressing yourself through certain ensembles and groups I think I'm comfortable with the uncomfortable so I love being challenged and I, I call it like a spherical approach because I know some people will take one direction and they'll just keep deeper and deeper and deeper down that hole that they're digging you know which can be really powerful for me it's like I go around in a circle <laughs> so like try this over here and then I'm gonna do a 90 degree turn and try this over here you know and then 180 degrees so I really love the 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 fact that the music is flexible and that it can embrace so many different ideas. Like with Mandorilla Awakening, my, one of my latest projects, this idea of having coexisting musical languages that are totally contrasting and how do you compose for that and how do you make a space where everybody's authentic voice is heard but yet there's a, a clear communication and like something beautiful that we can create, you know, and then the project with... Um, Bamako, Chicago, with these musicians from Mali, and you know, com co-composing with Balake Sissoko, and you know, we're making music that we don't write down, and how do we communicate that, and how do we share? So, I'll probably just keep doing, <laughs> keep trying new things, um, because it's exciting to take risks, and that's the thing about music is it's a, it's a safe place to take risks. So why not? You know, why not? And why not? have the experience of you know learning you know learning about other people making friends you know making new friends and expanding you know our our you know we're expanding our community you know